philanthropists have a unique role to play in American society because they're the only ones who don't have short-term accountability and therefore have the freedom to experiment. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community in general. Along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Our guest today is a dear friend and a Chabruta partner, Yossi Prager. He has been executive director of the Avichai Foundation since 1994. And under his leadership, Avichai has invested over $400 million to advance two main objectives, encouraging Jews towards greater commitment to Jewish observance and lifestyle, and encouraging mutual understanding and sensitivity among Jews of different backgrounds. This episode is particularly interesting because as we record this, Avichai is approaching the end of their spend down, meaning they're finishing to distribute all their foundation funds. That spend will be completed at the end of 2019. And as we talk in the conversation, the way that Avichai has approached and documented the spend-down process is a fascinating lesson for the field. Both the programs of the Avichai Foundation and the way in which the spend-down was managed and documented are things that the entire field can learn from. Yossi was educated at the Yeshiva College and the Yale Law School, and he practiced law before taking on leadership at Avichai. Yossi also teaches a course on foundations and social change at NYU, and he was the editor of the book Towards a Renewed Ethic of Jewish Philanthropy, which I warmly recommend. I really valued this conversation and Yossi's wisdom, and I hope you will too. So let's get to it. strategic change, rapid, if I'm not mistaken, 10 years ago, when it was decided that it was going to be a spend-down foundation. How, how was that process? So we actually had two strategic changes, one just before I came and one in 2009. The first strategic change was a decision to move away from Jewish education for adults to Jewish education for children. And that came after 10 um, hard, partially rewarding and partially frustrating years where the trustees felt that um, they just weren't having the impact they hoped they, they would have had. And we're going to publish a book about Avichai's history and the story of those 10 years, which is a really interesting one. And it's a reminder to anybody that it takes a long time to work out kinks and success never happens overnight. 10 years ago, we, in anticipation of the spend down, we tried to figure out how could we have maximal impact. And we asked Joel Fleischman, who's a senior vice president at Duke and sort of dean of American philanthropy, to gather for us information on prior spend down foundations. And he came back with an empty folder. And we said, oh boy, um, you better chronicle our spend down so at least there'll be something to put in the folder. So he agreed to do that. 
and he gave us his first report. And instead of a chronicle, it was a pretty harsh critique of the way we were doing business. Um, he said a spend down foundation has to operate differently. Number one, he's against go it alone philanthropy. We were sole funders of many of the projects that we supported. And we were long-term supporters without any thought of what the future would bring. We were rich. They were good. It was a beautiful partnership. But if you're a spend-down foundation, you have to think differently about uh, being in partnership. Somebody has to pick it up after you go. Right. Which means not only do you have to think about how to sell the projects you have and how to prove their success, but you have to go into new projects in a different way. If you really want to have long-term success, you have to go in with funders so that it's a jointly thought through project. And we were very nervous about that because we thought part of the success came from not having diffuse interests in your program. A second critique was that we were program funders and were not investing heavily in building the capacity of the grantee organizations so that they could be effective for in a period after Abichai. Um, and the third critique he offered was that the trustees were really caught in the weeds. The trustees approved every program. Every program had a trustee assigned to it. It was done in partnership, staff, and a trustee. Um, and the end result is that he felt some of these larger issues that he was raising in his spend-down memo weren't being addressed at the board level because everybody was caught up with the minutia. So our trustees saw this report, and after they got over the shell shock, uh, a chronicle turning into a critique, they decided, you know what? He was right. And we retooled our culture so that we would go into new programs only at a maximum of 50%. So we would no longer be sole funders. Uh, we undertook a whole variety of activities to build the capacity of our grantees, some hiring fundraisers and hiring consultants, and in the maximal cases, actually funding them to do a strategic plan that would cover planning a plan for the future and all of the capacities that they needed to succeed. And um, then we funded some of those strategic plans to different degrees of success. And our trustees invested more authority in the staff. They began approving buckets of activities rather than individual programs. And all that required pretty significant culture change within the foundation some of it at the governance level, some of it at the staff level, um, taking a different kind of responsibility, working in partnership with other funders, being much more public about the work we did. We developed a, an internal hierarchy just uh, in, as an operating mechanism because we were playing different roles. So when I, when I hear you describe this, this critique, I mean, first of all, they apply to a big chunk of the philanthropic community, I would think, and they're valid, not just for spend-on foundations, but I guess for everybody. Like when I hear you speak about field building, like that's one of my values within Jeff and people are into funding programs rather than solving problems. Yeah, I agree. And I think that what distinguishes contemporary philanthropy is this focus on moving the needle and solving problems. And Programs are a vehicle and not an end in of themselves. I agree with that. And I also agree that the lessons from Abichai Spend Down are not limited to Spend Down Foundations because what, in addition to all of the culture changes thing, pieces that I just talked about, 
there's also this idea of what did we want to accomplish by the time we close? What would the world, our field look like in 2020? And then how would we get there? And that compelled us to set up a bunch of working groups that set parameters and goals for the philanthropy over the last 10 years. And I would highly recommend that to any foundation that had goals and wanted to accomplish an end rather than just do programs. And these depend on makes it more stark. Like everybody ideally should have should ask themselves the same question, right? Like where do you, how the world is going to be different because of your action in 10 years, in 20 years, and down the line. Samuel Johnson said nothing focuses the mind like hanging in a fortnight. <laughs> Doesn't mean that the mind should only be focused by the prospect of hanging. Now it takes courage to take such a deep critique of your work. I think that the trustees showed the quality that is not so common in the philanthropic community, which is being open to feedback from the field and from experts. I think that these, these culture changes that accompany the rest of Avichai throughout its history. Avichai's trustees have always been active managers of the foundation. Initially, it was described as a trustee-driven foundation. And one of the really impressive things is how over time the trustees have adapted to a different kind of partnership with the staff. It remains trustee managed, but a, a partnership in which the staff took a much greater role. And yeah, they were prepared to look in a really honest way at the work that we were doing. And again, the spend down was a piece of it because we only had so much time to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And there was an understanding that these were going to be the trustees that would take us through a wind down. So it was on all of us to get done. The trustees were definitely flexible and willing to be self-critical and willing to give room for the staff to implement recommendations that they thought made sense for us. And that culture of looking at data and using research continued with Abichai, correct? Like we were working together now on, on a report on the, the image of the philanthropic field this is just one example. You've produced a lot of research over the years. What, what, what place does this take in your work, in your approach to philanthropy? It's interesting. I think that foundations are often shaped by the culture of the founder. If the founder is in a retail business, the foundation has kind of a retail orientation. I would say that's true about the Marcus Foundation. Zalman Bernstein, Avichai's founder, built a business based on research and value investing. He wasn't charging clients for trading. He was charging clients for the quality of the research. And when he began at Avichai, everything was data-driven. Every time we entered a field, it was because the research showed that this was effective. Let's say day school education or summer camping. And then we commissioned the research report to figure out what were the parameters, what needed to be done, what were the best activities. And then we funded programs, and then we evaluated the programs. And we've tried to use not only our research, but research done by others in the Jewish community to inform what makes the most sense going forward. And it's not always quantitative research. Sometimes it's qualitative research. Um, you learn by doing. You don't only learn from data. But to us, data has really been the the starting point and the touch point for our philanthropy. And we've now published 50 research reports in North America alone. So what, what do you think are the, um, the areas in which you think more research is needed? One area we need more research has to do with ultimate outcomes of 
programs. There are so many programs around Jewish identity today. Some longstanding, some newer programs, Moshe House and One Table, um, legacy organizations. Everybody has this goal of generating sort of greater Jewish participation, having people's Jewish identity be stronger. But we don't really know what works beyond inputs. We know how many people participate in a program. But except for birthright, there isn't really any long-term following of program participation, and there isn't even kind of clear language and thinking about what kind of outcomes we're trying to achieve. So different foundations use the same words and mean different things. But isn't that, isn't that really the root of the problem? Because when you talk about Jewish identity, what do we really mean as an outcome? It's more people observing halacha, it's more participation, it's more philanthropy. And I don't think there is an agreement in the community to create a, a common standard What's interesting is that as much as we live in a world where um, the, the, the image that Len Sachs uses is we don't necessarily have one homepage. We've got a lot of windows open at the same time. But when you actually look at demographic data, the people who are more involved in one thing are more likely to be involved in another. People who are involved in being members in a Jewish communal organization, people who attend the synagogue, people who send their children for some kind of Jewish education, they're also more likely to be philanthropic givers and more likely to be studiers of Torah. So there is some truth. You can't prescribe rules. You can't say this matters and this doesn't matter. But so far, it seems to be the more, the more. And so the real question is, what kind of programs induce people you know, to change their lives in a way where the trajectory is really different, where as time passes, um, in whatever way they are practicing their Jewish lives, it becomes a homepage for them. It's not just one of the windows open. And, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that the challenge is we can't agree on outcomes as much as we're afraid to have the conversation because it might prevent us from... Um, ambition is to have very large numbers. That the goal right now is how many tens of thousands, how many hundreds of thousands. And if we really focus on um, outcome, maybe the numbers won't be as large. But isn't that, I guess, a permanent tension in Jewish history, right? To go broad or to go deep? You see that playing out in the Jewish community too today. Like, but there seems to be a, an unspoken debate the concept of lowering entry barriers and demanding less of what you're saying, less participation, less commitment in order to get to more people. And the other view seems to be let's better have smaller numbers but a stronger core. So I don't think I want to get caught in this in-reach, outreach discussion. Let's let's take Chabad. Right? They have no barriers to entry. Anybody can walk into a Chabad and anybody can stay in a Chabad, whether or not they choose to take on any practices, observances, intermarried, unmarried, it really doesn't matter. You can have low barriers to entry. The question then is what happens over time? And I think that's the right thing to measure, that whether it's with Chabad or whether it's one table or Moshe House or anybody else, if you track these people longitudinally, 
what happens with their lives. And we haven't done enough of that. We're measuring how many people participate. Ultimately, that question, it, it touches a deeper question that maybe we are avoiding, which is defining what is the value proposition of being Jewish in this language. What does it give you? What does it give the world? I'm not sure there is a single answer. For some people, the answer has to do with how Shabbat brings them a sense of community and time with friends and maybe a good food and, and a warm home. And for some people, it might be the idea of Shabbat as unplugging from the world and being an opportunity. You know, there's like there's life at the level of experience and life at the level of ideas. And, you know, some people will tell you that um, radical freedom is part of what's causing such extraordinary anxiety in our lives. And I'm not making a case for um, minimal freedom, but there being parameters for us might, might make it happier, healthier for everybody. And again, it gets to this, you know, you can look at it conceptually and you can look at it experientially. Um, you, you can talk about, you know, what does Judaism have to, have to offer the world that is distinctive still today? And, and Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about that a lot. Um, and for some people, those, that conceptual understanding will be really important. And for other people, the question is, is my life um, more meaningful? Does it make me feel better? Am I more in touch with um, friends and things that are deeply meaningful in life? So it doesn't, I'm not sure it lends itself to a, a single answer. And it's linked to another question that I think is important, which is the definition of what community means today. What does it mean? I mean, we're dealing a lot with the boundaries of community. So the definition of what Judaism is, what Judaism offers, and what do we measure in terms of Jewish educational outcome, is linked to the idea of who's part of the community and who isn't. Well, I, I, I think you're, there are multiple levels to uh, attack that and or to, to address it. And, you know, there's one question of, do I get to choose my community? Right, the whole notion of kinship, peoplehood, is that I am, whether I choose to recognize it or not, I'm part of a community of other Jews. And that's another point that sort of butts up against the radical freedom. The notion that I'm in community with people, whether or not I choose to experience or act on it. So that's kind of one level of community. The level of community of who I invite in how big I consider the tent to be. And that's something that is proving to be very polarizing right now at this particular point in American Jewish history. And I would say, you know, in Israel as well. Right. And I guess we should figure that out at some point if we don't want to have a situation of fragmentation of the community. Right. We need to figure it out at the level of concept. And we just need to have people who disagree with each other, spending time together so that they're not demonizing the other person's point of view, but associated with real people with goodwill, um, genuinely believe, genuine beliefs.
people at NYU, you try to teach them about philanthropy. Um, what can you tell about how people, how young people these days, think the field of philanthropy? What surprise you of the young people in general? In the way they approach philanthropy, but in general, as they as they learn, as they approach knowledge, as they relate to you. So, if we're focusing for a minute on my course at NYU, it's really a course about um, big giving, large philanthropy in America, and the social policy issues raised by it. What's the toolkit, and do we end up with a better democratic society? Um, are people better off as a result? And so it's as much, um, it, it's pretty far removed from the individual lives of the students. Um, it's not about their giving, their volunteering. Typically the kids that come to the course, students have themselves volunteered. They are in some way involved in the nonprofit world and this interests them. And some of them have public policy minors, some of them have film or media minors. Um, but, but the course is less about um, their day-to-day lives than the field of philanthropy uh, going forward and how society in our era changes. There's, um, you know, there was a time when big government was going to be the answer to our societal questions. Well, right now, two-thirds of the federal budget is non-discretionary is going for social security and debt payment and Medicare. And so the federal government just doesn't have money. And a much greater opportunity and burden is falling on private philanthropy. And because of the wealth inequality in our society, the opportunity um, is in the hands of a relatively small number of people. It's very far from the society Tocqueville described in 1830s. so I'm not sure how many people outside the field of philanthropy, including these students who start sort of really being unaware, even know what a foundation is or the opportunities and the challenge that foundations pose for society. So what you say about the government, some people would tell you, well, that's a function of people actually taking money out of the public sector and in some cases going into philanthropy. So, of course, the government can do less because there's a lot of money that should go to the government that is not going, and partially it goes to philanthropy. And instead of somebody who's been voted to allocate funds, allocates them, you have a person who's just wealthy who gets the right to allocate funds that would otherwise be public. Right? So that's a strong criticism that is leveled at how philanthropy works today. So let's try to tease out strains in that. Um, One is belief in government as offering solutions. And you asked me before about students and what I'm seeing from them. So I teach at a very liberal university, NYU, very low on John Haidt's heterodox academy list. (laughs) Um, Very few of these students demonstrate any belief in government as a solver of problems. So even among young liberal Americans, they don't have the faith in government as the solution. So let's just bracket that and put it off to the side as as one thing worth knowing. There's a second aspect to this, which has to do with what the right kind of progressive taxation system is. In other words, one argument against philanthropy is people are 
not paying their fair share in taxes and the government is not able to do all that it needs to do, forget about problem solving, even alleviating misery through SNAP and other food programs. And, And so that's also a separate issue. What's the right level of taxation? And there's yet another issue, which is how to close wealth inequality, which is a very big problem in our society. It's a very big problem that we have a very small number of super wealthy people and many, many, a very large number of Americans who in real terms are not earning any more than they did in 1950. So I'm not going to talk about any of that. I just want to bracket it. You asked me about um, how how do you defend and support the role of philanthropy in our society? The argument that Joel Fleischman makes, which I find very compelling, is that philanthropists have a unique role to play in American society because they're the only ones who don't have short-term accountability and therefore have the freedom to experiment. So corporations, they need to be accountable to their shareholders, and their primary goal has to be to earn money for shareholders. Politicians... They get elected and reelected every two, four, or six years, and they certainly don't have the freedom to think in the long term. They have to worry about accountability to their voters in a very short term. And nonprofit organizations, they need to raise money. So they don't have the luxury of saying, well, we're going to try something now, which will bear fruit 10 years from now, because they may not be around 10 years from now. Philanthropists have the freedom to experiment in bold ways The hospice system is a function of uh, American philanthropy. Um, Healthcare for homeless is a function, the the approach to that, the 911 system. They're just over and over again, as you look at um, powerful and positive things for our society, they have been the result of philanthropy because philanthropists have the freedom to fail. Philanthropists have the freedom to try without accountability, and then what works can be scaled up and what what fails can be dropped. Um, You know, there's a concern that, and this isn't so much true for Jewish philanthropy, it's it's specifically for, or more broadly true about American philanthropy, Um, part of a positive goal of philanthropy is trying to get government to undertake a certain policy approach. And because, of course, we are politically divided, Money that goes to adopt a certain policy approach is, um, uh, you know, against the views of others. And so if we end up deciding policy by who brings more money to the table, then we have um, a challenged democracy. Right. Like that, that's not as true of philanthropy within the Jewish community. That right, because we don't deal with public policy issues. But are there any specific challenges you think to Jewish philanthropy? Challenges of what kind? Like, you know, like you said, that there is a challenge to the democratic decision-making, or could be, there's a potential risk of of democratic decision-making in general philanthropy because of that dynamic of bringing money to sort of promote a specific vision of how to solve a problem. Uh, Are there any specific challenges that you see in Jewish philanthropy may not be linked to this one, maybe something else. Right, and there is one link to this question, which is um, even when I started work at Abitai 25 years ago, communal systems still had greater opportunity for making policy together, whether it was through federations or other organizations. 
And today, individual philanthropists or small numbers of them working collaboratively are much more likely to determine policy to the extent you can say that there is a policy, even to the extent you can say there is a Jewish community. And I think there is great resentment among people who do not have access to that kind of wealth, that there are a small number of people determining which are the programs that get supported and which are the policies and who defines and who define who's in the tent and who's out of the tent. And so that's sort of a general challenge for our Jewish community, our inability to make policy together. I think that's a function of the atomization of life. That's not a, a genie that can be put back in the bottle. an issue that, that for me personally it's very important and I know that for Avichai and for you personally it's very important which is the issue of Jewish day schools. Um, I find myself very frustrated sometimes at the lack of philanthropic support, lack of meaningful philanthropic support for the day school field. I mean, I'm a product of day schools my children are product of day school, I'm a firm believer, and yet I have a lot of difficulty passing on that belief. It is as if big chunks of the uh, community have kind of given up on day schools. Is that your feeling too, or is it just me? So we need to put this into some context. It is uh, you know, The view that you are articulating is, I think, certainly true when you look at the JFN membership and the sort of larger... American Jewish foundations. But let's think for a minute about the day school system as a more than $2 billion business that raises probably less than three quarters of its income from tuition. That means that there are probably $500 million every year given to day schools. And that's probably done overwhelmingly by parents and grandparents and people in the community who are close to these schools and care about their future. So I think what What's missing is Jewish, Jewish philanthropy for day schools at a national level, coming up with solutions, whether they are big funds or whether they have to do with leadership training or all kinds of, of needs that we address in so many other ways at a national level that the day schools don't have that opportunity. Every day school is trying, trying to just keep their head above water and struggling to do that. And we know that they are the most effective form of Jewish education. And we know that even if you look outside the Orthodox community, there's a disproportionate number of leaders of Jewish organizations who are themselves day school graduates like you and like so many people you know. So the energizing nucleus of the Jewish people is more likely to come from day schools than anywhere else. And so, yes, absolutely, there is some frustration that there aren't philanthropies investing more heavily in day schools. But we should all recognize that that is on top of $500 million a year that are being given by parents and others close to day schools every year. Any idea on how to crack that nut, how to make the community at large see day schools as a resource for the entire community? So maybe a couple of ideas about that. Um, or rather, is there any community that figured it out? So no community has figured it out in the full sense of the word. 
But in Metro West New Jersey, there are three or four local day schools that benefit from an $80 million endowment fund or $80 million of endowment funds that were raised locally that make a huge difference in the tuition policies of that community. So, you know, in Montreal, they've raised a substantial amount of money um, yeah. toward the generations effort, which is helping to subsidize and improve day school education. So there are communities that have made progress. I think it's hardest in the greatest concentrations of Jewish day schools. Um, the Federation in New York gives a very small amount per student because it would require so much money to give a larger amount per yeah. student. We can help people gain greater awareness of the contribution that day school graduates make. We can help day schools show the larger Jewish community about the contribution they make and can make within the community. And what's implicit here, of course, is the high price point that day schools have, right? Like that's part of why the issue of creating endowments is so critical. Absolutely. And the, the other kind of thing under the surface here that people, there was a time, let's say in the late 90s, early 2000s, where day school philanthropy was kind of gaining strength because day school enrollment was growing. And so there's a beneficial cycle or a negative cycle that feed on each other. And if we can figure out how to persuade more parents to send students, I think philanthropy will follow. And if we can persuade philanthropists to invest more heavily, I think enrollment will follow. There are lots of things that are cyclical, yeah. and I think this is one of them. So, at Jeff, as you can imagine, we have a lot of debate about what constitutes Jewish giving. Like, is Jewish giving money given to Jewish organizations? Is given by Jews? Is informed by Jewish values? I know that you've, you've reflected a lot on all these issues. And what does it mean to give Jewish food? I think the semantics get in the way of um, good conversation about this topic. It's clear to me that if you give money to NYU Hospital for a cancer center, your giving is informed by Jewish values. And you are doing a mitzvah in any traditional Jewish sense. The question I would ask is, who else could be giving to the NYU Cancer Center? And who else would be giving to Jewish organizations? There are 350 million Americans, or whatever the subset of wealthy Americans are, who should and could be interested in, in curing cancer. And there are only a very small number of Jews who have the capacity to build Jewish educational institutions, to build Jewish community centers, to um, advocacy for Israel, whatever it is that you find important. And so the question is not simply what is Jewish giving in the sense of informed by Jewish values, but where is the best use of dollars for people who care passionately about the Jewish community? And, you know, I would never argue that 100% of dollars should go to the Jewish community. We are members of the human race and we need to be caring about other human beings and we should be giving to the soup kitchens and to the hospitals. But the soup kitchens and the hospitals are our primary recipients. Then we are no different than any other good, caring American. We, we have the opportunity to do something more, which is to build this particularistic, very special Jewish community that 
has this opportunity to build a Jewish people in America that brings meaning and wisdom and joy to so many people's lives. Do you think if there's something in the traditional Jewish ways of giving or practices around giving that are particularly relevant and necessary today? I think there's so much Jewish wisdom that is relevant today. Um, it, you know, in one sense, where to give, you're not going to find so much help in traditional Jewish sources because the Jews were segregated in their own country, in their own ghettos, in their own communities. So you don't have these issues of giving to the Jewish community versus giving to larger society. You do have issues of giving to Jewish poverty as opposed to giving to hospitals, as opposed to giving for Jewish education. But I think the wisdom is about other issues. The issue of should we be anonymous in our giving or should we stand behind and, and take responsibility and draw others in? Should we be trying to um, build our own character in the course of giving? How much of giving is about ourselves in addition to giving to others? How much is wisdom important um, in addition to money? But where really does the power, should the power lie when you value wisdom and value money? There are, you know, just such a wealth of Jewish sources that can inform us as philanthropists that are not limited to the question of to which organizations should we give. And I think those have really yet to be fully developed. And I think it's an opportunity for us through JFN to really help develop those uh, sources that will enrich us as givers and professionals. Yossi Freyler, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your wisdom with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. You can learn more about Yossi's work and the fascinating journey of the Avichai Foundation at avichai.org. In a moment, we'll preview next week's episode. But first, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback, your guest ideas, your criticism, your manuscripts for your historical fiction thriller, whatever you want to tell us. Write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network and the world of Jewish philanthropy at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter at Spokhoini. Next week, we'll speak with Naomi Adler, who is the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. 38% of our Jewish community cannot make ends meet. Disabilities and poverty are the two hardest things for which we need to raise money. And frankly, that's why the collective is so important. Poverty is something we can actually solve. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to catch that episode. I leave you with the thought from Pirkei Avot, chapter six. More than your study, do. So studying is important, but keep doing, keep giving, and join us the next time for What Gives. <laughs>